As I was thinking about this series uh, that we're starting today, I remembered an old story about three prisoners in line to be executed by the guillotine. The executioner asks the first prisoner if he has any last words, and the first prisoner, a pastor, says, I pray that God spares me, that he shows that I'm innocent and he sets me free. And they put his head under the blade, they release it, and it comes speeding down but stops about one-third of the way down. And the executioner says, that must be God's will, you must be innocent, you're free to go. And so the executioner turns to the second prisoner and asks for his last words. Now, the second prisoner is not a follower of God at all, but he saw what happened with the pastor. It worked for him, so he thought, I'm going to try it. He said, I pray that God spares me and shows that I'm innocent and sets me free. He puts his head under the blade. They release the blade. It comes speeding down. It stops about two-thirds of the way down. And the executioner says, it must be God's will, you must be innocent, you're free to go. The executioner turns to the third prisoner who is an engineer and says, do you have any last words? And the engineer points at the guillotine and says, I think I see the problem, we can fix that. Yeah, some of our engineers uh, know that that's really true, isn't it? Anyway, today we're starting a new series called Cheating Death. And this series is about the people who Jesus raised from death before Jesus walked out of the tomb alive again. So in other words, we're going to talk about the resurrections that happened before the resurrection of Jesus. And uh, this series will lead us right up to Easter weekend. And Easter weekend at, at Impact is going to be an incredible, incredible weekend. We have a Good Friday service this year, and uh, that will help you focus on Jesus. And it will also be designed for your older kids to be able to attend with you. In other words, it won't be gruesome. And since we are going to spend four weeks talking about people being raised to life, we are going to give you five opportunities on Easter weekend to make the decision that you just saw two people make. And uh, we're going to give you the opportunity to die to your old life and be raised to new life through baptism. So here's the five baptism opportunities we've scheduled. The first one's Good Friday at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. 3 o'clock in the afternoon is the time when Jesus died. And so we're going to give you the opportunity, if you want, on that day to die to your old life at that time. The second opportunity is at 6.30 a.m. sunrise on Easter Sunday. Scripture tells us Jesus rose from the dead at sunrise. We're going to give you the opportunity, if you'd like to be, to be baptized at sunrise and we'll be here to meet you. And after any of our Easter services, we'll also have that opportunity. Now, if you already know that you're ready to be baptized on that weekend, you can just take one of your Connect cards there in front of you, and you can write the word baptism and which of those times you would like to uh, be baptized, and we'll contact you. And if you think your child uh, that's fifth grade or younger uh, might want to be baptized, we uh, write that down so that we can arrange for the required baptism class so they can participate on that day. It's going to be an awesome weekend, and you want to be here, and you want to invite your friends to join you for the series, especially uh, for Easter weekend. And you should have been given an invite card. You can pick more of them up in the lobby at Guest Central if you would like to so that you can just invite all of your friends to be here 
and I hope you'll use them. And you want to be here every weekend during this series, and you want your friends to hear these messages on cheating death, because as we look at the people who Jesus helped by raising them from death, we will find some lessons in many areas of our life that need some help. I'm convinced that nearly everyone has some area of their life in need of a resurrection. You may have dead hopes or dead dreams. You might have a dead career path. You might be in a dead or a dying marriage or maybe relationships with your parents or with your kids seem like they're on life support. Or maybe you just feel like you've lost so much that you don't understand why God would let certain things happen in your life. And if you've experienced any of those losses or you just feel like you're dying inside, this series is for you. I'm praying as we talk about miracles that Jesus did to help people cheat death, that you will experience a life-giving touch from him during this series. Let's pray as we begin this series, shall we? Heavenly Father, right now there are people in this room that just feel dead inside, maybe spiritually dead, maybe emotionally Father, I pray that they might experience life through Jesus again. That they might open their heart to you so that you can give them new hope and new life and new strength. And Father, as we open your word, we just await your touch on our heart and on our life. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The event we're going to look at today is found in Luke chapter 7. If you want to open there in your device or uh, in your Bible, or the scriptures will be on the screen. But uh, Jesus begins that chapter, chapter 7, in Capernaum, and it was kind of his headquarters. He preached there quite a bit, and he preached in the surrounding areas. In fact, when you visit that town today, as some of us will be doing in November, you're invited to go with us on that trip, but when you approach the entrance to Capernaum, there's a sign there that says, the town of Jesus That's how much time he spent there. And so at the beginning of chapter 7, Jesus is entering into Capernaum and he's asked to heal the servant of a Roman centurion. And uh, as he's going to this man's house to heal his servant, the centurion, this Roman official, sends someone to Jesus and says to Jesus, the uh, centurion says, you don't have to come to my house. I know you're a busy guy, you... Uh, He said, I'm a busy guy. I say, go here and do this, and people do that. So you don't have to come to my house. You just have to speak the words, and my servant will be healed. And Jesus is amazed by this man's faith. He says, this man who is not a part of God's people has more faith than most of God's people. And it's just after he heals that servant, it's just after that, 
that this event that we want to look at takes place. Let's start reading with verse 11 of Luke chapter 7. Here's what it says. Soon afterwards, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. And as he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. Now, the little village of Nain was on the slopes of Mount Tabor. It would have been about a day's travel by foot from Capernaum. So Jesus and his disciples have left Capernaum, and they have walked all day on dusty roads to get to this little village. And as the passage tells us, it isn't just Jesus and his 12 followers It's this large crowd of people that are following after Jesus. And apparently, they get to Nain about the time that the sun is setting. Now, how do I know that? Well, the traditional time of Jewish burial was at sunset. And as they approach the city gate, a funeral procession is coming out. And in their culture, that would have meant that the death of this young man had occurred within the last 12, maybe 24 hours. And they meet this large funeral procession. And so the passage describes these two large crowds of people converging together here at the city gate. But here's what I wonder. And I wonder this as a parent who has lost a child. There's this very large crowd around his mother... And it just got larger as it meets this second crowd. And here's what I wonder. Did she even notice? Did she even notice? I mean, we don't know exactly what happened, but I imagine that she's been through a roller coaster of emotions, hearing that her son is sick, initially thinking that he'll be fine going and trying to care for him, watching as he gets worse and worse. She probably spent at least one night watching next to the deathbed of her son. And being there might have brought back to her mind sitting at the deathbed of her husband and the grief that she felt that night. Only that time she at least had her son to comfort her and to help her. This time when the shock of death takes place, she has no one. She has nothing left. Oh, her friends are there and they're well-meaning and they're trying to console her and they're acting as if they understand But she's in shock and she's in pain. And then she begins to go through the motions. The funeral's going to happen in a few hours. And so they have to plan the funeral. And then she goes through the motions of the funeral. And she's walking to the cemetery that's just outside the city gate. And as she's walking, she might be thinking about the fact that in about an hour... She will have to retrace her steps and she will return to a completely empty house after leaving her son in 
a cold, dark tomb very near where her husband's body lay. So here she is, surrounded by a crowd, and then there's this other crowd of people, yet I imagine she was completely alone. She felt completely alone. You might have experienced that. Times when you were in a really large crowd of people, maybe even a crowd of people that cared about you and loved you, and yet you feel very alone in your pain and your grief. Some losses are so big that it's as if there's just nothing left. There's just nothing left. Have you ever felt like you had nothing left? I mean, you've tried really hard to fix that marriage situation and you feel like you just don't have anything left to give. Or you give your, you give your all at work and you don't even seem, it never even seems that they even thank you or that they ever thank you, but they keep stacking more on your plate and you just feel like you don't have anything left. And it might even be in your relationship with God. I mean, you've prayed and you've begged for his help and it seems he hasn't heard you or he hasn't answered you and the situation doesn't seem to get better and you just feel like, you know what, I'm just done. I'm done. I don't have anything left. What do you do at those times? Well, let me use the rest of the story of Jesus' procession meeting this funeral procession to encourage you with a few things that are true about Jesus when you feel like you have nothing left. First, notice this. He isn't just there. He cares. He isn't just there. He cares. Look at verse 13. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her. I think Jesus saw this funeral procession. And when he saw it, he stopped and his crowd stopped too. I think they probably, this crowd of people had been talking, maybe laughing together and maybe planning what they were going to do when they went into this village. And uh, Jesus stops and then this loud crowd that's with Jesus slowly becomes quiet as they realize there's a funeral procession. Now our tradition when there's a funeral procession is we just kind of get out of the way we let it go by. We let them pass. But their tradition was different. As good Jewish people, they would have joined the procession. They would have gone with them to the cemetery out of respect for the dead and uh, respect for the grieving family. And when you know who Jesus is, it might be some comfort to you just to know that Jesus is there when you're hurting. But sometimes we don't even notice we don't even notice. I doubt that the widow noticed at all. But he noticed her. He noticed her and his heart went out to her. He knew in that moment when he saw her that this was much, much more than a funeral. As we said, she was a widow, so she had lost her husband, and now she has lost her only son, and both of those are huge griefs to bear. I've never lost a spouse, so I don't understand that one. I can only imagine the pain. 
but I have lost a child. And I can tell you that there is absolutely nothing normal about that. We're not supposed to bury our kids, they're supposed to bury us. And so there was this double loss. There was this double grief for her. But there's more to the story because of the culture that they lived in. She was not only feeling grief in that moment, I think she was feeling absolute panic. Absolute panic. You see, in their culture, women had no rights at all. Women couldn't own houses. They couldn't own property or businesses. And when, her, when a husband died in their system, their system for taking care of the financial needs of the widow was for the son to protect and care for his mother. That's why it was so important in their culture for a newly married woman to quickly give birth, not just to a child, but to a son, because that was their welfare system. That was their retirement system. Now, you might be wondering, what would happen if a husband died before the woman had any sons? You are not going to be glad you ask that question. Their Jewish law had this. By Jewish law, if your husband died and you had no sons, his brother would be obligated to marry you and provide you with a son. And your first son from that marriage would have been considered your first husband's son. Now, if your husband had no brother, the closest male relative would have that obligation. Now, some of you are quietly doing the math in your head. <laughs> You're figuring out under that law who you would have to marry. You just threw up a little in your mouth, didn't you? You are praying for your husband's health right now, aren't you? Well, aren't you glad we aren't under that law? But when this lady's husband died, she had a son. The property that her husband owned and her house all passed to her son. It was his job to provide for them financially. She could stay in her house because he owned her house. Her son owned the house. But the passage says she's a widow and she's burying her only son. So she isn't just in a crisis of grief. She is panicked about her financial future. And there's one other thing. Many in the crowd would be viewing this woman with suspicion. You see, the Jews had this kind of reverse prosperity gospel. Some today teach a prosperity gospel that says, you know, if you do everything right with God, that he's going to make you rich and you're not going to have any pain, you're not going to have any disease, you're not going to have any problems. And they didn't believe that, and Scripture doesn't teach that. But the Jews did believe that when bad things happened to you, especially if a series of bad things happened to you, it was because of some horrible sin that you had committed and God was punishing you. So this woman, she truly had lost everything. She'd lost her husband. She'd lost her son. She'd lost her financial security. And she'd lost the respect of the people around her. She truly had nothing left. 
And that's when Jesus showed up. He always does, you know. He always shows up and meets us in our time of need. He isn't just there for us. He cares. His heart went out to this woman. In the Greek, that's a very strong word for caring and compassion. His heart was breaking for her. And if you are living in a heartbreaking situation today, you need to know something. You are not insignificant to Jesus. You're not insignificant to him. You aren't invisible to him. He sees you. You aren't alone. He notices and he cares about our pain. He isn't just there. He really cares. Let me point out something else that is true about Jesus. He doesn't just care. He steps in. He doesn't just care. He steps in. Look back at the verse. Start again with verse 13. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her and he said, don't cry. Then he went up and touched the stretcher they were carrying him on, and the bearers stood still. Now, in their culture, what Jesus has done here would have really shocked people. I mean, he touched a dead body. That would have made Jesus ceremonially unclean. And I'm sure when he did that, there was this gasp in both crowds of people. And he stopped a funeral procession. And that would have just been considered really rude. I mean, delaying a grieving mom from getting to the graveside, chancing that the burial might have to take place after sunset. That just would have not been okay. And before he did all that, he tells a grieving mom, stop crying. Really? Wow. That seems so insensitive. I mean, of course she's crying. Yep, because he cared, he had to step in. I imagine him walking through the crowd and going directly to the mom, maybe speaking so quietly only she could hear him say, don't cry. And at first she's shocked, but there's this quiet confidence in his voice. Something very soothing and comforting. And she wonders what he's doing when he walks over and touches her son. And at that moment, she may be a little jealous because she wants to touch her son. And then she wonders why he stops the funeral procession. But here's the lesson. In our time of pain and conflict and anxiety, Jesus doesn't just care about you. He wants to step into the situation and give you comfort and help and peace. It probably comes as a quiet whisper sometimes in somebody else's voice. It comes as an unexpected touch, but he will step in. But here's the key truth. He will step in and help you, but you must allow him access. You've got to allow him access. You have to let him step in. The mom could have pushed Jesus away. She could have just pushed him away and said, how dare you? Get away from me. 
And she could have said to the people carrying her son's body, just keep going, don't stop, don't let this uh, crazy guy delay us. She could have just pushed Jesus aside at that moment. We do that sometimes, don't we? Jesus tries to step in and help us in that moment of panic and pain, and we just push him aside and keep moving forward towards our plan, which usually leads to more pain. How many times has Jesus tried to step in and help you, but you insisted on proceeding with your anger to try to fix that conflict, or your dishonesty to fix that financial problem, or you were just enjoying your pity party too much to let him step in and help. The passage tells us clearly, Jesus doesn't just care about us, he steps in to help us. And there's one more lesson. He doesn't just step in, he restores hope. He doesn't just step in, he restores hope. Look at verses 14 and 15. Then he went up and touched the stretcher they were carrying him on, and the bearers stood still. He said, young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. Now, here's a fact that makes this situation in Scripture just a little different. Makes it a little different. In most cases in Scripture, when Jesus heals someone, when Jesus does a miracle, it's because someone has asked him to. In most situations, someone has expressed faith. They have believed that Jesus has the power to do what he's about to do. They've expressed faith and trust in him. In this situation, that didn't happen. It didn't happen. No one asked Jesus to bring this boy back to life. And the reason that I think no one asked Jesus to bring this boy to life is they probably didn't think he could do it. They didn't think that he could restore life. Oh, Elijah and Elisha had done uh, this in the Old Testament. In fact, uh, they had both raised sons of widows. But that had been a long time ago when no one was expecting it to happen again. So no one had asked Jesus because they thought the situation was hopeless. But there's a lesson that they learned that day that we need to learn today. And that's this, Jesus changes hopeless situations. Jesus changes hopeless situations. I like the way that a pastor in the United Kingdom writes about this. His words are more beautiful than mine would be, so let me read what he says. There is a singular uh, exception in this present instance. No voice pleads with him to perform the miracle. The crowds are silent. The mourning widow is too deeply absorbed in her own grief to observe the presence of the prophet of Nazareth. Besides, notwithstanding his other miraculous deeds, he has never yet raised the dead so that even if she had known or perhaps personally witnessed his ability to heal the sick and cure the disease, she would never imagine he had the power to reverse the irrevocable sentence and unlock those gates of death, which for 900 years since the time of Elisha have been closed to all miracles. Without parade or ostentation, the divine redeemer enters amidst the crowd, but observe it is to whisper in the first instance, in the ear which most needed it, the balm word of comfort, weep not. 
And even when the word of power is about to be uttered, that word which is to summon back a soul from the spirit land, all is done in unobtrusive silence. In silence, he touches the coffin. In silence, he beckons to the bearers to stand still. And as the two meeting crowds have now mingled into one, amid the same hush of impressive silence, he sounds the omnipotent summons over the sheeted dead. Young man, arise. Life's pulses begin again mysteriously to beat. A well-known voice again meets his mother's ears. Oh, who would mar the touching simplicity of the inspired narrative by endeavoring to depict the burning tears of wonder and love and praise which roll down these sorrowful furrowed cheeks as in the simple words of the text, Jesus gave him back to his mother. The boy's resurrection resulted in this beautiful reunion with his mom. In a moment, with just one simple command, Jesus gives her son back to his mother. And by doing so, he gives hope to her. The grief that she was feeling is completely gone. The panic about how she will survive is gone. Even the dread of returning to an empty house is gone. Jesus changes hopeless situations. But you might be thinking, does he still do that? Well, to be honest, I don't know about him stopping any funeral processions recently. So you're wondering, was this just a one-time situation? I don't think so. And neither did the people who were there that day in Nain. Look at what they say in verse 16. They were all filled with awe and praise to God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. They declared him to be a prophet. Well, of course they did. They declared him to be a prophet like the prophets who had raised the dead 900 years before. But then they said something else, something really important. They says, God has come to help his people. God has come to help his people. And they were right. When Jesus came, it was God coming to be with us, to help us. That's why they called him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. He came to live with us, to care for us, and to step into our problems and our pain and to restore hope. God has come to help his people, and he has never left. He has never left. I want you to hear me clearly. Jesus can change your hopeless situation. He changes your hopeless situation. I think Jesus wants to give you hope again in that situation that seems dead, that situation that seems hopeless to you. And maybe you don't think that's possible. And you might not think it's possible for a number of reasons. I mean, maybe you feel it's not possible because you think 
it's your faith that died. You think it's your relationship with him, your faith that has died. I mean, you used to trust Jesus. You used to believe in his power, but you have been disappointed and you, you don't feel like he's answered your prayers or at least not the way that you want him to, wanted him to. Or you used to be close to him, but you've been doing things your own way and pushing him aside for so long that you just don't think he's going to step in anymore. You don't think that he's going to work in your life anymore and maybe you really feel like it's your faith that's dead that it's your faith that there's nothing left with please listen Jesus brings dead things to life Jesus brings dead things to life and maybe the first resurrection that you need today is for Jesus to raise your faith back to life and when that happens resurrection will result in a beautiful reunion between you and Jesus and he wants that he's always wanted that because even when you've been far away from him he sees your pain he has seen your pain and his heart has gone out to you. And so if you're hurting today, you need to be reminded that God hasn't changed. He hasn't changed. He has always cared about you. And he's always been ready to help you. Look at what it says in Psalm 34. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He rescues those whose spirits are crushed. If you feel brokenhearted or crushed or hopeless or maybe even dead inside, let this season be a time when Jesus brings you back to life. Let him help you cheat death and regain his life and his hope. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, I believe there are people in this room who have just been feeling dead inside. Maybe dead spiritually. Maybe dead emotionally. Father, thank you so much that Jesus brings dead things to life. Thank you, Father, that Jesus cares about our pain. Thank you, Father, that he doesn't just care, but he steps in ready to help. And thank you, Father, that he gives hope in hopeless situations. Now, Father, would you cause us to trust him? Or would you cause us, Father, to experience your healing touch, your comfort, to hear that voice that is so confident and assured. Would you help us, Father, to not push you away, to not push away this moment, but to trust you completely. We pray all of this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.